I'm John Crane. And I'm Bernie Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session. With our dad, Jason Crane. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 435 for April 28th, 2014. On today's show, bassist and photographer Ruben Ratting. Hey, become a member of the Jazz Session, why don't you? It's five bucks a month, and with every single show, you get free MP3s, and there'll be other exclusive content too, but even the MP3s alone more than pay for your membership, especially now that the show has gone weekly, because you're getting MP3s with every single episode. Remember, just 5 bucks a month, that's $60 a year. It's almost nothing for many people. For some folks, it is a lot. And believe me, for me, it means a lot. So you can join right now by going to thejazzsession.com slash join. That's thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks a lot. While you're online or while you're in iTunes, please rate the Jazz Session and also leave a review. It helps the show move up in the rankings. You can also leave a comment on this episode right at thejazzsession.com itself, and I hope you will. This is one of those rare interviews on the Jazz Session when the guest is not on the show because of a new album that is being released. It's just somebody I find really fascinating and have wanted to talk to for a while, and on the most recent trip I made to New York, I finally had the chance to sit down with bassist and photographer Ruben Ratting. All throughout the episode today, we'll hear various tracks that Ruben appears on, but actually a lot of the interviews talking about photography, which is one of the things that Ruben is doing a ton of now, and is very, very impressive. So here we go with some music followed by my conversation with the fascinating Ruben Ratting.
My guest is photographer and bassist Ruben Ratting. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here. This, uh, I was saying to you off the mic, this is one of those kind of rare shows where someone isn't on to promote anything in particular. And so I feel like we're just kind of relaxed and able to just talk about whatever things lead us. And it seemed like a, a good place to start because I'm such a huge fan of your photography um, is with Apparitions, your new book. And uh, I'm just, I guess I'm really interested in whether photography has always been a part of your life, whether it's something that has taken over recently, and then eventually talking about maybe the intersection of that and creative music. Hmm. But just starting with kind of how you how you got into photography. Well, I mean, the simple truth is that I got into photography because of living in New York. And uh, like most New Yorkers, I would walk the streets doing my daily tasks and routines and see all kinds of amazing things. You know, from before I actually lived here, when I started coming up to visit from D.C., where I'm from, uh, in the late 80s, it was like walking into a movie after living in a refrigerator, you know, at D.C., at least in the suburbs where I grew up, was just a very manicured, predictable existence. And I started coming here uh, with friends to go to see music shows and, and uh, party. And, I mean, immediately I was just blown away by the visual reality of of the city but also just the things that would be happening on the street the way people live in public here and are so uninhibited and and you just see so many surprising things so um for years i i would say uh to myself when i'd see something crazy happening you know god i wish i had a camera um but i i'd always convinced myself that being a musician was uh really about all I could handle. And that was all I thought I had any talent for. I still think that's probably true. But um, the, By the way, the jazz session has a no false modesty rule. So you're an amazing photographer. It must be well, obvious to you by now. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I've, I, I've, to whatever degree I'm good at it, I've had to work really hard. Sure. It's, well, that's it, fine. There's been no shortcuts from, from, uh, from talent as far as I've can feel and I feel like I have something to compare it to sure you know because music always I always had to work at it but it there was the sort of natural um I mean I hate I actually don't like the word talent but it was in my case music felt like something that just wanted to happen with me and and as long as I was playing an instrument with strings on it I had a I had a shot at being able to make something happen uh, whether I worked hard at it or not. And then if I worked at it, all the better. But with uh, photography, I didn't feel like that was true when I started. Um, you know, I, But I, by that time, I had done so many things in my life, I felt like, well, it's learnable. You know, there's, there's a way to learn how to do this if you have a, a passion. So I, I worked at it. Now, I, I had one brief period in the early 90s when I, I tried to take up photography and I bought a camera and and I started taking pictures on the street and in uh, other unusual, you know, weird situations. But um, then one day my somebody stole my camera 
at a, a restaurant in the East Village, and and I I just felt really demoralized, and I was really broke, and I I couldn't afford to buy another camera. I just sort of let it all go, you know, for a couple of decades, <laughs> and this happens, you know, things uh, things take funny turns. So yeah, it was many years later when when uh, I just got fed up with with seeing all these things every day on the street, and I was on the street a lot, and I was. I, I just, man, I, I got to just do this. So I, I got a camera, and this was before we all had cameras in our phones, you know. So I actually had to get a camera and learn how to use it instead of just, you know. It's probably really good that, that I didn't have an iPhone then or anything like that because I probably would have just done that. You so know? was this in the early 2000s when you moved back to the city? or mm, Later, actually. It oh, wasn't okay. until uh, the mid-2000s. And at first, I really was very, uh, in, very intentionally trying to keep it as a hobby. And uh, I didn't even particularly share what I was doing with people, um, not much. And that was because I, I have a natural inclination. If I become passionate about something, I, I, I always want to instantly make it vocational because I don't want to have to do anything else. And and there's a good part of that. It it really drives you to to learn something intently and quickly and and uh, work hard at it. But the downside is uh, you can end up really beating the the fun out of something. So at the time I was pretty busy with music too. So I uh, I felt like let's just keep this you know my fun thing that I do for me and and um, and. I, I really didn't put much ambition into it, just a lot of a lot of energy and, and passion. And um, so for me, there were a few distinct steps in, in the progression of all of that. The first was just getting a camera, trying to cap, catch these things as I was going through my usual routine. So I just have a camera on me. And then the next step was um, keeping the camera in my hand because I realized that if it's in your in your bag or in your pocket or something, and these crazy things happen very often, you'll miss them anyway. So that was the next step. And then after that came the big step of going out uh, specifically to find things to photograph. And then the, the, the next part, of course, was realizing that, uh, that, I, that maybe there was a way to take really good photographs <laughs> instead of just being in, happy enough to catch these things happening so i started trying to learn how to how do, how do you do that how do you make a you know good photographs so it's been it's been an ongoing journey i mean now the, the next step for me is to try to find a way to take it deeper you know now I, i've gotten into a, a place where i'm like okay i know how to do this i have some skills that that really uh uh make it possible for me to make the work i make but um most of the people i'm inspired by uh you know, they they get deeper into into their subject matter. Their their imagery is more complex. You know, more points of interest and so on. And and so I'm I'm just if I feel like I'm getting better, I'm happy. So that's where I'm pointed now. Now that I did this book, is to try to take it deeper. Can you say more about the process of learning to take a good photograph? What mm. what that entails? Well, there's a boy. It entails a lot. I mean, it, a lot and nothing at the same time. I mean, part of it is is just getting more. Uh, more willing to get real with myself in the editing process, you know, to start to see the difference. But, you know, at first, 
a lot of people who start photographing, they really can't tell what their good and bad photographs are. They just, they, and they might have affection for certain images they made, um, that aren't even good because of something that happened when they took it or, or just simply not really knowing how to judge. And, uh, I've, I mean, I think the, the most effective study I've done over the last five, seven years has been, you know, the things that have enabled me to see the difference between, you know, uh, at first it was easy to see the difference between trash and things that were maybe contenders. And that was all. And then in the last two years, I feel like I've really started to be able to tell, like, okay, this this is exceptional. And then maybe the next step after that is learning to see, well, this may be good, this maybe isn't, but trying to uh, take things in a particular direction, you know, like to sort of have a voice, you know. It's no different from music, you know, where, like, you know, you could play things that are perfectly um, – you know, appropriate or acceptable, and they may not be what you intend to do. You know, you want to go down a certain aesthetic direction. So it's the same with photography. As far as learning to take good photographs, I mean, there's the technical side. There's the physical side of, you know, being, like in my case, being on the street and and, uh, what I have to do to, to put myself in the right places. And there's the editing process. And, and, you know... What I did, because I didn't feel like I started off with so much talent, was I, I, I did a little research and found out, well, what's, what's the textbook that most university photography programs use? Is there one? And I found out there was. And so I ran out and, and bought it. I found a used copy at the Strand, and, and it's, it became sort of my Bible. And um, What's that book? Oh, it's just called Photography. It's over on my table here. Um, but it's... I mean, every university has been using it forever, and they just keep updating it. And so mine's like a couple editions back from the most recent. But um, you know, there's there's all kinds of uh, there's there's a lot of rules of thumb about composing photographs, and and they come from the history of of painting and drawing and and uh and then some that have been observed since the invention of photography and and that stuff's all learnable you know it's all knowable and it's really hard to embrace when you're out uh on the street and just see things happening around you um but the more that you steep yourself in the ideas of of these kinds of compositions the more you start to sort of see them on the fly or maybe you only see them in the editing process where you go ah in this one in this attempt, I actually am, you know, observing this or that principle. And composing refers to, like, where the elements are in the photograph? Exactly, okay. exactly. Well, yeah, elements uh, or um, or the arrangement of lines or curves or, uh, you know, things that indicate perspective or, you know. But, yeah, the arrangement of, of elements within the frame. <laughs>
When we've been talking about good photographs, is there is there an objective standard of what good is, or at least what bad is, where <laughs> photographs are concerned? Well, it depends on who you ask. I mean, I think it's easier to tell a really bad one from a really good one. I mean, there's you know, there's so many ways to be good, and there's so many ways to be bad. Um, you know, leaving aside the technical, because you know that's um, it's not very uh, inspiring to, to talk about, and I'm not any expert on it, but, uh, you know, I mean, I, I can only talk about this subject in, in relation to street photographs because the, there's so many genres of photography and there's so many things that can make a photograph successful or not based on, you know, what path it's trying to fit into. So in my genre, uh, that I'm doing the most. Uh, you know, I mean, I have a whole list of things that I could talk about that make something a superior street photograph. And all of those things are subject to being violated. I mean, honestly, um, every, every, any rule, I mean, you know, the, it's such a cliche of every rule is meant to be broken, but I mean, people who really have mastery over something, uh, the rules are just kind of become instinct and and then the ways that they bend and and uh, prod at those boundaries are, are what make things exciting. I think uh, street photographs are best when a number of things are happening. I like it when there isn't a real obvious awareness of the photographer when there when it feels like the I like there to be people, first of all, <laughs> in the photograph. I like them to not be reacting to the photographer. Um, I like there to be more than one point of interest. Um, I like to feel like I like to see an interaction, if possible, um, faces. Um, there should be something happening. I, there's thanks to the internet there's just a an ocean of imagery out there and a lot of people now there's sort of a, a, a resurgence in interest in street photography and and uh it's very easy for people to share it and um you see a lot of the same images over and over of just people crossing a street you know somebody standing on a corner doing nothing and it's it's really um it's really depressing sometimes to look at all this stuff and I try not to. Um, and, and, you know, when I first started, I probably took, you know, millions of those same pictures, but I, I didn't share that many of them. And, and now, I mean, of course I inevitably have garbage like that, that I shoot, but, and, and I, so I understand why people take these pictures, but you know, there's no reason to share them with anyone. They're really boring and meaningless. So, you know, for me, I think, you know, like when I was making my book, um, the thing that I, and I still feel good about this when I look at it, is that um, most of the pictures, I think, raise questions in your mind as you look at them, or or maybe make you wonder something about, you know, how, how that happened, or, you know, 
how was I there for that and, and all of that. And that, that excites me, you know. If all I am, I mean, you know, there's cameras on every street corner practically in New York City and, and, and on the sides of buildings and there's, you know, we're, we're constantly being recorded and, uh, and, and visually and, and otherwise. And, and, you know, if we're going to set what we do apart from, from just spy cameras, you know, and drones, then, you know, we need to have some kind of intention some kind of special thing to bring to the to the to the task you know it's interesting as soon as you said that how was i there for that i realized how many times in the back of my brain i've thought that when looking at your photographs mm-hmm. just thought like well, and sometimes consciously I'm just thought, wow it's it's amazing that <laughs> Ruben just happened to be at this thing at this time and catch this amazing photograph. And obviously, when you only see what the photographer has selected for you in the end, sure. you're not seeing the 10,000 things you didn't quite get to and all oh, of that yeah. kind of stuff. So I get the way in which the final product makes it look like you're always everywhere at the right time. And of course, that's not the case. But Right. Yeah, hopefully it looks like that. I mean, you're absolutely right. There's a, there's thousands of failures for every everything that you that you see even my my worst stuff that I'll share with people is you know has 10,000 mega failures leading up to it you know it's 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 pretty brutal i mean I, you really have to want it because i mean i think you know it's not as bad as writing where i think like fiction writing i think requires the greatest tolerance for failure of of anybody and i don't mean failure on a public level or business level. I mean, just the task of writing, you know, that's, that's really difficult to, to, you need a, you need a strong constitution to deal with that. And photography, uh, of the kind that I do, I think also requires a lot of, a lot of tolerance for failure. Um, I think though it's less of a psychological test, the failure part, you know, I think, you know, my experience is, you know, doing something like writing fiction, uh, it, 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 you know, the failure feels like a judgment of you, you know, and if I, if I go out and have a, a bad day where I don't, I don't get any, any images I like or anything that even is a contender, I, um, I'm unhappy for sure, but I don't feel like it's a judgment of my soul, you know, I don't feel like it's a, um, a measure of my worth, you know, maybe for a few minutes. But, you know, I get over it pretty quickly. It's it's pretty easy to do for me. Uh, maybe for others it's different, but for me that's how it is. And so um, that that the tolerance for failure uh, is still required, though, because, you know, like back in the spring – I took this week-long workshop with uh, Alex Webb and and Rebecca Norris Webb, two brilliant photographers. And and on the first day, I I had an amazing day. I mean, I, I shot probably, you know, well, I shot hundreds of hundreds of frames, and and out of those, you know, I would have been thrilled to get two that felt like contenders, and I got something like ten, and and it was. You know, a couple, several of those images ended up in my book, and I felt really great. And I was like, "Wow, I've really turned a corner here." And then the next day, I had a terrible day. You know, and uh, 
I that my, definitely my best day of shooting of the whole week was that first day, and I had some you know good ones after that, but the first day was by far the best. And you just can't know you know when stuff is going to happen, where you're going to be, if you're going to be in the right place, whether you're going to make the right decisions, and you know it's it's totally unpredictable. Um, well, it strikes me that even in New York, uh, you know this place where so many things happen that still the majority of people you pass at any given moment are just walking to the store or walking to the bank or you know doing they're doing things that might it might be difficult to capture something interesting on film and it i mean uh-huh. it feels like you're kind of dependent on them also doing something and maybe I'm totally wrong about that well partly Partly dependent on on uh, something interesting being presented to me, and partly uh, partly uh, being willing to pay attention to the most fleeting moments. Because, like, I mean, I took a photograph that I I, I don't think I've ever shared it because it's not that great a photograph. But I I mean I've I like I like it enough that I'm thinking of it right now, and it it was of a woman on a street corner with a couple other people and. She looks like she's screaming in terror, and she's just yawning. But, and why did I decide to bring the camera to my face when I turned and saw her? I mean, I didn't really know what it was going to look like when it was frozen in a split second like that. But, you know, I just, at this point, I trust my instincts. If some, you know, something makes me feel like I want to take a picture, I just do it. And, and, uh, so I ended up catching her in this mid yawn that just looked really kind of frightening, and um, and things like that are really important. I mean, if you really observe carefully, you know, even these ordinary people walking to the store that you describe, they do all kinds of strange things um, that only last a split second. So if you can, if you froze those with a camera in a split second, they look like something so much more. And that's what it fascinates me about still photography and why I'm not at all interested in video is I love that aspect of, um, of how freezing a, something in, in a split second like that creates all these questions and feeling of narrative or, or whatever. I mean, it's interesting, uh, you know, being able to share photographs on Facebook and, and other forums like that. Um, you know, you, you see people's comments and people assume all kinds of interesting narrative stuff about photographs like that. And, um, you know, a lot of times they're wrong, but it, I like that aspect of it. You know, some a lot of my favorite stuff you know, really just makes me ask all kinds of questions. And if they were, if some of these things were seen in continuous motion, you might not have any, uh, any interest at all, just be something really mundane, you know, like, and now that I'm so used to this, even if I'm not out shooting, I just, I notice these things in people, somebody will be walking past me and they'll, they'll do something with their tongue, you know, the, their tongue will come out of their mouth and, you know, lick their upper lip or something. And it looks totally strange if you stop and notice. But if you're not really paying attention, it's just, you know, you know some person walking down the street. You don't really think about it. So that's what I, I love about it is is if you, you capture these moments, uh, 
they, it, it takes them out of context and, and makes them a lot more interesting than they feel like in real life. Yeah, it's. I've always referred to poetry the same way for me, that it is in some ways kind of, sometimes I call it the spidey sense or the superpower, that it is the thing that allows you to slow, at least allows me to slow the world down, not necessarily to that single second, but to notice small pockets of interaction or small pockets of meaning mm -hmm. taken out of some larger context. And so I, I notice that I walk around and I see things differently you know, even though I can't in that moment bring a camera to my face and capture it, I, as soon as I see it, am already kind of in my brain parsing out the bits that I think, okay, later I'm going to take this fragment of this person's behavior, mm -hmm. and that's going to be a line of mm -hmm. a poem, which I really, I really love. And I also realize how much I didn't see before I started really focusing on the craft of writing, how much just passed me by before I started slowing the world down a little bit. Yeah, when you're involved in, in a pursuit like poetry or or photography where you're uh observing life uh through it you observe life differently in your day to day you know you just start to you start to hear things and see things and you know um taste things in a in a different way it's it's incredibly rewarding One thing that fascinates me, I've never interviewed a photographer before, although I've interviewed people in many other artistic disciplines, but listening to you talk, and I guess maybe part of this is the fact that you are, in fact, also a musician, but listening to you talk, if we just took out the stuff that's technically about photography, mm -hmm. so much of what you've just been saying reminds me so much of what creative musicians on this show also talk about, and about this this kind of interaction with the world and... Uh, this need to uh, someone on this show once said that uh, you know the only way they could think of to define jazz was music that had danger in it or risk and this willingness mm. to maybe fall on your face so that you could produce something creatively some of the time that was you know beyond what you might have imagined or mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and so when I hear you talk I just think yeah exactly so so much of this seems to translate into maybe any artistic pursuit but certainly the one that I spend most of my time 
talking with people about. Well, it doesn't have to. I mean, there there are plenty of people who who take on music or any other art form and don't embrace risk. You know, there's there's uh, you have to have an appetite for it. You know, I mean, I think Steve Lacey said that. You know, it's that appetite for being on on the the high wire for being on the ledge is is not universal. Not everyone has that. Even even creative people, um, they might feel a certain degree of that in themselves but you know there's there's uh there's some pretty low risk ways to be involved in creativity and i've always embraced the riskiest ones that that spoke to me and to me i mean i'm glad you brought that word up because that defines everything that i've ever tried to do and that 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 means you know for instance that even in the world of so-called jazz I always gravitated to the the areas with the most improvisation, the most willingness to bust open concepts of instrument function, of you know boundaries of genre to you know to even like what kind of environments to perform it in, you know, and you know it's no different doing photography. I you know my the challenge to me is always to become more courageous out there. If I'm on the street just doing what's comfortable, well, what's that for? You know, it's really boring and it doesn't result, doesn't result in much growth. And, uh, and you're going to see that in the work. You'll see very comfortable looking images. I don't like that. I'm not interested in that. It doesn't excite me at all. You know, I mean, I like beauty like anybody you know, but that's just not where, where the, um, it's not where the deep stuff happens for me. It happens in, in things that are a little grittier and have some, have some sweat on them, you know, and in music, it's the same. I never cared for, for things that were very pastoral and, you know, or, or predictable, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, one, I, I always gravitated to the things I, gra- I was gravitated to, but, you know, in the early 90s, the the big trend in the jazz world was, not trend, in the jazz world in the early 90s, there was this, this very uh, intense conversation going on everywhere about, you know, uptown versus downtown, and the critics were all, you know, drawing their lines and making their uh, a, a, allegiances and and basically putting forth this idea that you know either you believed that the uptown cats were doing the real thing because it sounded like what the cultural consensus called jazz you know and and dressing in the right suits and playing the right kind of bebop influenced stuff or you believed that the downtown cats were the real continuation of jazz because they were continuing the spirit of of being forward looking and 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 growing and improvising and you know trying to make something new and not be in a static art form looking to the past and um you know i like a good young passionate person from downtown really believed that we were the continuation of that and then i remember but I, it felt like such a losing battle, though, 
you know, it felt like, well, we all know this and we all believe this righteous thing, but the the world isn't coming along with us. The world is following those those guys who are just imitating the past, the retro, whatever, and it felt very upsetting. And then I remember this very uh, memorable conversation I had with Anthony Coleman, the genius pianist, keyboardist, composer, teacher, and um, Anthony said to me, he said, you know, fuck jazz. Let them have jazz. I don't want it. You know, like if that's what it means, like, great, you know, take it. You know, I'd rather, you know, I don't remember his exact words. It would, it would be terrible to, to badly paraphrase him. But basically the idea that he was putting across to me was you can't fight these cultural consensuses. You know, if the if the world has decided jazz sounds like a certain thing and is a certain thing and you dress a certain way for it and, and it has these kinds of boundaries around it, great, take it. You know, I'll be down here in in my <laughs> neighborhood doing what I think is great, which doesn't depend on you calling it a certain name. You know, I mean, I remember an interview with Anthony Braxton in the... Um, I think it was near the end of the 90s where where uh, he was saying, you know, all of these questions that we seem so obsessed with, you know, that we spent the last 30 years answering about, you know, can a woman do it? Can a man do it? Can black people do it? Can white people do it? Uh, you know, does it have to swing? Does it not? It's, it's not swinging good. You know, all these things. The answers to all these questions by now are evident. They're self-evident. We don't even need to answer these anymore, but we keep doing it. And what we need now are better questions. I completely agreed. Completely agree now. And so, you know, now here it is. It's not the early 90s anymore. It's It's 20 years later. And it feels like there's a lot of people now downtown has moved to Brooklyn and uh, I apologize to people around the world for the New York centrist, New York centricity or whatever the word would be of my, my thesis here, but this is my world. And so anyway, the downtown has moved to Brooklyn and the, the Brooklyn jazz to me, it has so many, you know, forward-looking elements and, and, you know, so many young musicians have, have come into the music without, without as much baggage about the past and, and really freely incorporating all their influences. But it feels like in a certain way the <coughs> the sort of um, poor me mentality of it all is, has been pretty hard to dispel. You know, there's still this feeling of like, well, the the establishment would never... Well, is never going to get it, you know, and and maybe they're right, you know. I I just find that more and more I'm not even concerned with it. Yeah, and I don't remember sure how I got right. on this subject, but no, it's fascinating, and I'm sure they are right. It just doesn't seem to need to pathologize that into something bad. I mean, the fact that they're not going to get it is just maybe a fact. And well, I, I mean, all right. Well, here's what I really mean to say: is I think people are too attached to the word jazz, and I sure. think people are too attached to the relationship of what they're doing to jazz and i i think that like the one of the best things i ever did for myself musically and culturally was to stop even using the word if possible i use it you know in situations where i just don't want to have to get into a big conversation about what i really mean but it honestly in my musical life i am i see myself as a folk musician you know i i feel like i it, 
an improviser, you know, I mean, I do a lot of kinds of music and I've, you know, um, like any good bass player, I've, I've involved myself in whatever's made the phone ring or whatever's felt exciting, you know, wherever the best musicians were, that's where I wanted to be. And because of how I function, I see myself, you know, in sort of terms of being a folk musician where I, I'm, it's an oral tradition, I, I, you know, it's not a conservatory tradition, you know, improvising is, is about uh, working with your peers and, and your elders in the field, you know, in the real world of performing and of private sessions. And I was never much for school. Um, I think education is a wonderful thing. It, it was never my world. Maybe that'll change. I'm only 47. But um, I really loved being able to just, as Braxton would say, kick it about, you know. And I never, I, I learned how to play straight ahead jazz uh, just well enough to figure out that I didn't want to really do that. And um, and uh, stopped trying to learn the show tunes, and you know respected the 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 uh, the craft of it immensely. Still do have spent some amount of time, you know, trying to learn the elements of that. And it's a it's a deep pursuit for those who do it. Um, for me, there wasn't enough risk in that. You know, it needed to get a lot scarier, and it needed to get a lot more. Um, uh, open, you know, and I don't mean open as in, you know, the lack of chord changes or, or meter. I mean, open in terms of, of concept, you know, of what's available, you know, aesthetically at any, at any given time. And you, your initial musical interests as a teen were in the punk scene. Is that right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, at first it was just, you know, rock and roll, but sure. then, you know, the, the, punk new wave independent music of the time was was uh where yeah well that was where it was at for me so know. when you were first coming to new york from dc was it to see shows kind of in that world? yeah more or less i mean i guess at the i don't know what you would have called the music at the time I mean, at the time it was just you know indie rock sure um you know what would we come up to hear? I mean, we came up to hear things like Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. And um, there was a band called Killdozer from from Milwaukee. We used to go see them. And, you know, I mean, just so many. Actually, there were way too many groups to mention. And, there, and good groups here in New York that we would see, too. And so how did you... I mean, it feels to me just from reading about you, like pretty early on, you started to meet some of the big figures in creative improvised music or whatever term we're using in the context of this interview. I mean, it I mean, after it, I came to New York, yeah, it just, I was really lucky. I mean, honestly, uh, both through my, I mean, I had this day job for years, uh, at this store called see here, which to those who were around at the time is still kind of legendary. It was a, something that you couldn't imagine. Now it was a fanzine store. Basically, you know, we, we sold every, all kinds of books and magazines about music, and uh, I was the only employee other than the owner for uh, something like six years. And so I was always that, that depressed guy at the counter. Um, and back then, I mean, you know, we didn't have Internet to read about things. We didn't have, you know, any of the stuff that people 
cling to now. So, I mean, it, it was on the rounds for a huge community of, uh, of creative people, not just musicians, even musicians, filmmakers, artists, you know, uh, people who draw comics, you know, just And was this stuff thing. down to like the mimeographed all the way down, the, yeah, all nice. the way down from, from slick magazines, all the way down to stuff people, uh, you know, made on their, uh, made on the Xerox machine at the corner, you know, and, uh, and it was an amazing little nerve center. Uh, it was like the Floyd's Barbershop of, of the Lower East Side. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I met an amazing number of, of incredible people there. And one of them was Elliot Sharp, who was kind of, I mean, he changed my life. Um, I was working pretty hard to change it anyway. But, um, you know, meeting someone like Elliot will help it along. And... Um, I had been, uh, I mean, but even then I had met so many people. I mean, Matt Ship used to come in pretty much daily, you know, people like William Parker would come through. And, and at the time I only had a, an inkling of who these people were, but I, I knew that they were interesting. And I started listening to music along their lines and, and, uh, and I could listen to music all day in the store and that was incredible, you know, just spending all my time, you know, getting paid to listen to music, basically, <laughs> work a little bit, talk to people. It was an incredible time. And so would those people recommend things for you to listen to? Or how did you know what? To oh, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, everyone would come in and, they'd, you know, they'd comment on what I was listening to. And then we'd have conversations about it and stuff. I mean, I mean, that was how I learned about so much. I mean, really, before I met Elliot, uh, there was this. This drummer who, I don't know if you know, his name's David Gould. He still performs some. And uh, David was kind of my entree into the world of improvised music, like, you know, jazz or not. It was, you know, the the world of free improvisation. And and I at the time, I had no idea such a community existed. I was, you know, coming out of rock and roll and some experimental classical music, and, and I really, you know, didn't have any sense that there was this worldwide community of improvisers. And then um, I can't remember what I was listening to, some very, you know, out jazz thing. And David came in and started talking to me about it. And and um, I think uh, he also really bonded with me over my interest in, in uh, like, uh, German progressive rock, you know, like Can, mm -hmm. a band that I love a lot. And and uh, he, he said, well, you should be going to the – shows at a Micah bunker and i was like what's that and the <coughs> the a Micah bunker was a series that happened in a, uh, a succession of different places booked by uh, amazing people for a year or two at a time and uh at the time i think the bunker was at abc no rio on sundays and so i i went down to a show there and, and just had my mind blown open. Like, oh my God, it's like my dream come true that there's people who want to play music that's completely improvised. You know, I had, I'd always tried to get people to do that with me and they wouldn't. And so it was, it was, uh, wow, what a revelation. And then to find out there were records and, and festivals and, you know, a whole world of activity. It was just super exciting. And then, so then I met Elliot. I'd, I'd started jamming with Dave, and uh, we would make recordings of our 
of our improvs and and uh, we thought about finding a third person to play with us. We tried a little bit. It wasn't working out. And then I was talking to Elliot one day, and he said, so what's going on with your music? And I said, well, I'm playing with this drummer, but we don't know what to do. And he said, oh, give me a tape sometime. And I did. And uh, he invited us to play for a little while. We were a trio. And uh, Elliot introduced me to the Knitting Factory scene and and uh, a whole bunch of other people. And, and that was incredible. And uh, it just got rolling from there. Being a bass player is also really helpful, you know, because somebody always needs you. Um, I mean, not always, but uh, it's it's a little less lonely than than being a saxophonist or a guitar player sure. or pianist. <laughs> oh, that's a tough life, you know. Yeah. You don't even get to play your own instrument most of the time. Then at some point you made the move to the northwest, right? And what was the Yeah, that was, was in the like latish nineties, ninety six, ninety seven. What was the spur for that? Uh emotional exhaustion. Mm. I mean really I I um I have uh my history is such that I've never been very adept at taking care of myself. And to whatever extent I am good at it now has come through hard work and study, just like photography. I, I didn't start off with a talent for self-care. And I did a lot of things in the mid-90s that, that made life a little harder on me than, than it needed to be. Everything from uh, very challenging relationships to not having uh, a sense of how to help myself have a... a a more, uh, I mean, here's the deal. You know, in the in the mid '90s, I was playing with my heroes. I was touring with them. I was uh, doing collaborations with people that were uh, like the coolest things I could be could have been doing in that time. And I was not always very happy. And um, I had a lot of stuff just in life to figure out. 
And one of the things that started to come out of that was I got very interested in writing. And I, I started trying to learn how. And, and I was working very hard at that. And trying to do that and the very challenging life of a musician, a lot of poverty, and meanwhile not taking very good care of myself emotionally led to uh, a, a real breakdown almost. And my way of dealing with it at the time, uh, the only thing that made sense to me was basically to tear down my entire life and move somewhere else and get out. And uh, that all came because I, I decided I was going to take a little break from music. And I, didn't, I wanted to not pick an amount of time. I needed to just like, let it be open. And I, uh, I picked up and moved to western Montana. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's so funny to say it now because I'd never been there. But I was really interested in a bunch of writers that came from, from that area. And they had a, a, a school there that I thought I might like to study at. And uh, boy, you know, it sounds like something a really young kid would do. I was 29 at the time. And uh, I basically mailed myself to Missoula, Montana with a, you know, a backpack and a guitar and, uh, and just set up life there. And I, I didn't last a full year, but uh, it was an amazing place to be for a while. And I got a lot of writing done. But I still wasn't doing very good on the self-care part. You know, I was still living in a lot of poverty and, and uh, um, really just having a hard time. And after a while, it really got to me. You know, I'd, I'd come, you know, three-quarters of the way across the country to live in a small mountain town, and I was still kind of starving to death out there. So uh, I realized I needed, I needed some help, and I... I picked up and moved to Seattle where I had a lot of old friends for some reason a ton of people who I knew from DC had all ended up out there so it was many of them for different reasons but all of them ended up out there so I, I moved there and had instant community with some of my oldest closest friends and uh, um, it was a, a real blessing you know, it really was and I was there for five and a half years and how long did your hiatus from performing last? Mm, hiatus from the bass, I think, was three years. Okay. Yeah. So you start. I know you started again, and you brought some people from New York and that kind of thing when you were still in Seattle. Right? Yeah. Well, as soon as I got back into it, I mean, I, I you know, I got pretty into it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, boy, it, what an amazing experience it was. Uh, towards the end of my time in Seattle, I got this grant to bring Daniel Carter out there and do all this work that resulted in several releases and concerts and and uh you know relationships that that last till today and yeah what an amazing thing and the grant was tiny it wasn't even like I you know like I got some fortune to to make some huge Here's a million dollars thing happen right no <laughs> what happened it was really small it was enough to pay for you know, a plane ticket and and a, a tiny bit of studio time. That was it. And uh, um, uh, but what I found, and I think a lot of people have found this, that once you get um, a little support from somewhere, it's really 
there's an energy from that that you can turn into other opportunities if you're a little bit industrious. People like to help when they realize you're really going to do something. You know, when they see someone else get behind you, then they, they feel like getting behind you, too. I found that with trying to raise money to do my book last year, too. And uh, so I called people up and was like, look, I got this grant to bring this guy out here and and i think it's going to be really cool do you want to get behind it too and and people just jumped so i got us a gig on the you know the earshot jazz festival out there with no hesitation from from the presenter and and got us on a radio show and you know all this other stuff and then once it once that was all over then i started sending recordings around to people and i struck up this wonderful friendship with steven jorg from album fidelity and i mean steven was just uh, a righteous, righteous dude from the start, and um, you know it felt like a not just a opportunity to get a record out, but an opportunity to to really connect with somebody who, you know, where we believed in something collectively. And that's that's just awesome. You know, you can't put a price on that. And then in 2002, if I'm remembering right, you decided to come. Yeah, I got married when I was in Seattle to a woman who was also from out here, and and so we decided to come back, and uh, and uh, yeah, I think it was the right thing to do. I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, was it? Uh, what was it like to come back and make decisions about being part of this scene again after having been away for several years? Well, it was interesting. I mean, on the one hand. It was really easy to come back because I knew New York. I knew how New York worked. I knew how you how you connect with people here, how you how how things function. But the scene had also changed a lot while I'd been gone, and um, you know there were a lot of new people. Some people had left, um, you know, and relationships uh, musically, if they aren't maintained, they can they can end you know so i came back and some of my old friends who i had had such wonderful collaborations with i mean they had moved on to other bass players i mean i'd been gone for almost seven years i mean that's a long time in any music scene and uh people aren't going to wait around for you so i came back all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and you know like i'm okay now i'm not upset anymore you know <laughs> and everyone was like great you know but it, i mean they didn't necessarily have like you know, opportunities for me instantly, but some did, you know, the, the, the late great Roy Campbell called me right away to, to play with him. And, and I didn't even, hadn't even run into him. I didn't know how he even had my number, but you know, Roy was just a, a righteous dude. And, um, boy, you know, there, the, the good thing though, is that, uh, there's always more people here and, and there were, uh, so I made a lot of new friends and still got to play with some of my old friends, but uh, I made a lot of new ones. And so some of my most important musical relationships when I came back to town were uh, with people who hadn't even lived in New York when I was here before, like Mary Halverson and Nate Woolley and, you know, a number of others. And, and then there's people who I had known before but never worked with, like uh, Jack Wright, who to me is the, you know, the, the shining example of of what a free improviser can be uh you know i've i've known jack since you know the turn of the 90s but we'd never worked together and i came back to new york right about 
just soon after he had moved to back to Pennsylvania from being out west and next thing I know I was touring with Jack so you know you you expect one thing from life it always gives you what it gives you and and it may not be what you expect but it might be good you know when I moved to Missoula I thought I was going to uh completely change my life go to go to college um study creative writing probably end up a teacher um, meet some nice woman out there and, and, you know, live in the mountains the rest of my life. And I was there less than a year. None of those things happened. <laughs> I moved to Seattle, a place I'd never cared about at all. But now it's my second home. You know, I mean, just you don't know what's going to happen. And then, and then moving back to New York, I was like, I'm going to come back to New York. I'm going to do all the stuff I used to do. I'm going to be at the Knitting Factory every night. You come back, the Knitting Factory has hardly any creative music. You know, everybody's off doing their own thing, and you got to build a life. And, and fortunately, I love New York City, so it was worth it uh, no matter what. But uh, it's not the easiest place to come back to. I gone a little soft out west and and coming back here and having to you know do the fifth floor walk up and the you know like just trying to figure out logistically how to do things like buy a chair and it's just it just seems like this this in this right. incredible task how on earth am i going to do this buy sure a you chair climbed everest but i bought a chair in new york city right yeah. i bought a chair in new york city like you know or or I I figured out alternate side parking, you know, like these things are are incredible tasks. Oh, that's amazing. You know? Where uh, as we're kind of drawing to a close here, but where yeah. where do you where are you now in the in the music scene? Talk about where am I now? Where am I now? I uh, I one thing I learned from my hiatus. Uh, from music and my hiatus from New York City is that I don't need to quit anything. And uh, that my life works best when uh, I just follow the path that's in front of me. And I'm trying to do that right now. I'm taking a lot of photographs. I'm trying to get deeper with that. I'm uh, very happy to play music when there's music to play. I'm not doing a lot of uh trying to make my own projects with music, but I'm I'm involved in some beautiful collaborations now and then and uh very happy to do it. Um I'm also starting to write again, partly in kind of professional capacities and partly for myself. And um and I love all of it and, and I'm really enjoying uh not feeling like I have to be in charge of, of where it's headed. Um, it things just things are gonna turn out that way anyway. Even if I try to to push them in all kinds of directions, uh, I'm still gonna end up where I end up. That uh, is largely out of my control. So I'm trying as much as I can to to pay homage to that and and not try to control it too much. Um, so you know, it's a funny thing because uh, a lot of people, uh, I'll. I'll recently I've gone to play gigs and I'll run into musicians here and they'll say, Oh, I didn't even know you were still playing. And I think, well, what's wrong with you? Of course I'm still playing. How would you think I'm not? But you know, uh, people only know what they see you doing. And in current, like 
social media or wherever people see what I'm up to, they probably see the photographs more than anything else. But I'm still doing many things. <laughs> okay, I'm now going to ask a question I've just been instructed to ask, so I'm not even going to pretend I know what I'm talking about. So, Ruben, tell me about Jeremiah Zimmerman's 509.4 podcast, did you say? 5049. 504.9, close. Yeah, um, I think anyone who enjoys conversations like this uh, and and is a follower of the jazz session uh, would do very well to also check out Jeremiah Zimmerman's uh, 5049 podcast. Uh, I think that's at 5049records.com. And... Um, he, it's, it hasn't been around that long, but I think what he's doing is, is really brilliant because it, it gets to the heart of the real life of musicians. And I think that there's a lot of, um, mythology and, um, marketing that musicians, uh, embrace about themselves and the world would like to embrace it too. It makes a nice story, but the, you know, the real story underneath is really important and really deep and, uh, Jeremiah does some great interviews with with really important artists, great musicians, and 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 they get to the the real deal. You know, they get to the 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 real life that we live, and I think it's really important to hear. Tell us the name one more time. Uh, the five zero four nine records podcast. Jeremiah Simmerman with a C. Great, I'm going to check that out myself. You should. My, uh, tell people how they can get your book, too. They can get my book. Uh, I'll give you a URL to tell people, but uh, they can order it from the blurb.com website. Uh, or they And they can actually find a link to that uh, on my website, rubenradding.com. Fabulous. And I'll put all that in the show notes, too. So, folks, if you're driving so, or walking or whatever, you can check all that out. My guest is Ruben Radding. His uh, new book of photography is Apparitions, uh, one of his photos – is my apartment in central Pennsylvania, and soon a copy of this book will as well. And uh, it's been a total pleasure to talk to you, man. Thanks so much for doing it. Thank you. My thanks to Ruben Ratting for his time. Thank you also to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo. If you need writing done for your business, for your artistic pursuits, maybe it's a press release, maybe it's liner notes, maybe it's a biography, please go to cranewrites.com. That's cranewrites.com where you can find rates and samples for the work that I do. 
Thanks so much for listening. Come back next week for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.